Hello and welcome to the 7th Avenue Project. I'm Robert Polly. First of all, happy Mother's Day to everyone, whether you are mothering your own offspring or someone else's, whether said offspring are human or belong to some other species, and whether you are male or female. I'm advancing a very inclusive definition of mothering. But uh, on to today's program. My guest today is Joshua Dylan Mellers. He's a Bay Area filmmaker with a passion for music and world travel, and he works both those things into his films. We're going to be talking about his latest effort. It's called Play Like a Lion, the legacy of maestro Ali Akbar Khan. Ali Akbar Khan, uh, as I'm sure many of you listeners know, was a master of Indian classical music, one of India's most celebrated musicians. He played the stringed instrument known as the sarod. In fact, that's him we're listening to right now. Ali Akbar Khan settled here in California in the 1960s and established the Ali Akbar College of Music in San Rafael. He died in 2009 while Joshua Dylan Mellers was making his film. The new documentary explores the enormous impact that Ali Akbar Khan had on many musicians, not just Indian classical musicians, but also jazz musicians, rock musicians, and others. His disciples included his very own son, Alam Khan, who also plays the sarod and is carrying on the family tradition. Play Like a Lion is screening on Monday, May 14th at the Santa Cruz Film Festival. We will give out more details a little later in the program. Also a little later in the program, Joshua Dylan Mellers and I will discuss another new film that he has out, also about music and travel. It's called Heaven's Mirror, A Portuguese Voyage, and it's about the soulful, sometimes heartbreaking music of Portugal known as Fado. Here's my conversation with Joshua Dylan Mellers. Joshua, what inspired you to make this movie about the music of Ali Akbar Khan? Well, I have a very good friend from Afghanistan, um, and uh, I think it was basically growing up around him, the Afghanis really are into this music, and uh, his father was put on a death list and had to escape Afghanistan, and they had one night to get out of the country, and he gathered up all of his Indian music and records and got it all out. So, I mean, you can imagine the kind of passion they have for this music, and I think, you know, I had done a couple of music documentaries, and my friend Moji Bimak, who was the producer, just said, hey, why don't we do something about my tradition, my music, and, and that was kind of the window in. Oh, so Mojib is your producer, and it was his father who had to flee Afghanistan with all of his uh, his Indian music? Yeah, Mojib's father, Aziz. Mm-hmm. And, and by the way, you said he was put on a death list. When was this, and, and by whom? This was right before the Soviet invasion, so I think probably late 70s sometime. Um, and, you know, that, that was happening to a certain amount of people as the Soviets were right about to come in. You know, you, you get put on a death list, you've got one night to leave, and the first thing you think of is, get all my Indian classical records together. <laughs> wow. Um, and, and so he had little time to collect everything, but uh, one thing he was sure to take was this uh, collection of Indian classical music, yeah? I mean, it says a lot about someone's passion, and Mojib's family, they're connoisseurs and patrons, and um, they've been very much a part of this music for generations. There is a, a deep and ancient connection between Afghanistan and India. Cert- certainly, certainly. And, you know, um, I think historically some of the Mughal uh, leaders and emperors actually fled to Afghanistan, and, and they took warlords from Afghanistan and came back. Um, and, of course, this music, the, the Khan family actually traces their heritage 
to a 16th century uh, musician named Tansen, who was the court musician to the Mughal emperor Akbar. Um, so, you know, the, the connections between Afghanistan and that dynasty and that part of the country are, are very strong. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and you can see in the name of Ali Akbar Khan, that's a, a Muslim name. Uh, that uh, traces back to the Mughals uh, in North India, the um, Islamic rulers of that part of India. Um, now, this movie is nominally about the music of Ali Akbar Khan, and I was expecting to see a lot of uh, footage of Ali Akbar Khan and interviews with him, and there is footage of him, but mostly this movie focuses on his son, Alam Khan. Certainly. How, how, how did that happen? Well, you know, I think uh, when we started, to, when Mo proposed the idea of, of doing the, the documentary on the music and he really wanted to do it on Ali Akbar Khan's legacy, I was looking for the way in. Um, and I really wanted to bring the music to a wider audience, people, you know, Americans and people in other parts of the world who didn't necessarily know anything about Indian classical music. And we actually filmed all of them performing. It was December of 2005. And, you know, he just seemed like the perfect ambassador, the perfect person to guide someone who didn't necessarily know anything about the music into this world. Um, and it was really a, a great time to catch him because he was just starting off. Uh, we caught him taking his first solo tour to India a year later in 2006. And, you know, because he was born in the United States and actually grew up right up here in Northern California and then obviously had you know, so many experiences in India, traveling with his father, he was navigating that world between India and California and the United States. And so it just seemed like the perfect subject to kind of take that story and take that journey. Um, we should explain that Alam Khan, like his father, Ali Akbar Khan, plays the uh, sarod, the Indian stringed instrument. Um, and let's hear a clip from your movie of Alam Khan talking about the way he came to this traditional North Indian classical music. When I was 13, 14 years old, I was playing electric guitar, Jimi Hendrix, Nirvana, a lot of grunge music, stuff like that. But also around that time, I think I started listening to my father's recordings. the sounds, the kind of vibrations that you'd feel inside, the moods it brought out, that just has never left me. It was like recognizing an old friend. music and try to keep it alive and continue it. So that was Alam Khan, the son of the great uh, Indian classical musician Ali Akbar Khan, talking about his own discovery and embrace of this music that his father played. Um, how old is Alam? Well, when we started filming, he was 23, and now he's uh, just about 30. Wow. So he... He's quite young relative to his father, who at the time you were filming was around 85 years old. 
Right, exactly, exactly. And, and we were hearing some Sarod playing in the background there. Was that Alam or was that Ali Akbar Khan? That was his father. Oh, okay. And, and, you know, there's a lot of his father's music throughout the film, and sometimes people ask, you know, why, why is there so much of it? And, uh, and you know, not maybe more of, of Alam playing. And I, I think part of the reason is because when we were filming the documentary, um, preserving his father's music was so much on his mind. I, I just felt like the soundtrack of his life, was his father's ragas, his father's music. And uh, basically, it's a coming-of-age story. Uh, he was 23 when we started, and you see him taking some very big steps, both in his career and in his life. Um, and since the film, he's really, you know, taking off on his own solo career. So it's, uh, it was quite a time to be able to film both him and his father. Mm-hmm. Um- now, traditionally, this music is handed down from father to son, as it had been in Ali Akbar Khan's family for, what, how many generations? Well, actually, um, the Khan family legacy goes back to the 16th century, um, although that's not blood relations. Uh, they, they trace their musical lineage to Tansen. Uh, the 16th century court musician for Akbar, and and it was passed down through blood relations um, through the years from Tansen to his sons and so on, um, until uh, uh, Alam's grandfather um, was the first one to to learn this music um, from one of the blood relations of Tansen. So he was the first one in the Khan family to pick up you know the lineage. But, oh, I see. Yeah. So, so I stand corrected. It's a long lineage, but it isn't necessarily um, uh, father to son all the way back. But it had been father to son from uh, Alam's grandfather to Ali Akbar Khan, and then from Ali Akbar Khan to to Alam. Um, the difference being, though, that Alam grew up in the United States and was listening to rock and roll, and at some point he said, "I want to play Sarod like my dad." Um, you know, I think that he'd always been exposed to it, so he was probably always fooling around with this road, even, even you know, as a, as a young child. But like most American kids, you don't necessarily start off thinking about doing what your father or your, your parents were doing. And so I think probably it was, you know, in his early teens when he started to take it up seriously. Um, and I think the great thing about this story, too, is that even though Ali Akbar Khan was such a maestro and, and his father, uh, whose name is Acharya Baba Loudon Khan, is a great composer and musician, was, was considered to be a saint in India, he really had a very stern uh, way of teaching Ali Akbar Khan. And Ali Akbar Khan didn't want to impose the music on Alam. He wanted Alam to be able to come to it. And Alam eventually did come to it. But, of course, at that point, the lessons became more disciplined. (laughs) (laughs) You know, it's a very serious uh, music. And Ali Akbar Khan had to practice for up to 18 hours a day for, you know, like a 20-year period from the time he was very young under his father. So it's not a tradition to be taken lightly. And really to be able to get to the virtuosity of someone like Ali Akbar Khan, or or even just to play the music um, decently, you really need to put in the time. This is not something to be taken lightly. (laughs) I I have uh, seen documentaries about, you know, the traditional teaching, and I've seen virtuosi. Um, in particular, I think it was Bismillah Khan, the great Shanai player, drilling his tiny son 
um, you know, in uh, in various kinds of uh, musical exercises. And the kid was already fantastically accomplished at this very young age. But it is, as you say, a very, very, very rigorous musical tradition. Um, and Alam has taken it really seriously. Uh, we are going to get a taste of Alam's own playing, which is really impressive, but I want to play a little bit of Ali Akbar Khan's music first. Um, this is a section from a raga, that's the musical form he plays, called Rag Kamaj. So that was just a, a section of Rag Kamaj by Ali Akbar Khan, the great uh, virtuoso from India playing the sarod, stringed instrument that's sort of held like a guitar, but looks nothing like a guitar. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I'm Robert Polly. Uh, this is the 7th Avenue Project on Central Coast Public Radio, KUSP. And I'm talking to Joshua Dylan Mellers. He's a filmmaker. His latest documentary is called Play Like a Lion, The Legacy of Maestro Ali Akbar Khan. And it is showing at the Santa Cruz Film Festival uh, Monday, May 14th at the Nickelodeon Theater in downtown Santa Cruz at 8.30 p.m. That is tomorrow if you're listening to this show on Sunday. You can learn more at santacruzfilmfestival.org. Joshua, um, do you understand the raga form um, enough to explain it to us, this form of composition and improvisation? You know, uh, I'm a little bit afraid to. I'm a little <laughs> bit intimidated to uh, go into that territory. Um, you know, it's it's something that, like I said, the musicians uh, spend so much time getting into. So I, I don't almost feel as if you can completely translate the form unless you just do it and you have that training and you kind of feel it. Um, Alam said that his father would tell him that learning a rag, you know, a raga, the, the form, is like learning a city. And it's kind of like being a taxi driver. I mean, you, you can't learn just the main thoroughfares. You've got to learn all the little back alleys. You've got to learn how to navigate through that city so that you, you know where you're going. Um, I asked a, an Indian musician once about it. He was a jazz musician, but he had learned ragas uh, and now plays with some great Indian masters. And he said that, you know, it's a, it's a rigorous structure uh, that dictates the scales and notes you can play, and each raga has its own set rules, very complicated rules, and you have to be able to internalize them to the point where you can then improvise on them. And I, I thought, you know, I love your uh, city metaphor, but it's also a lot like learning the grammar of a language to the point where you can speak it fluently. So it takes a very long time. Yeah, certainly. And, and if, you know, just in filming uh, the classes that Ali Akbar Khan uh, taught or that Alam teaches, you get a feeling just from the way that they practice. Um, uh, they're going through rhythm cycles and uh, um, basically the, the scales and things like that over and over again um, to get their chops down. 
And, you know, every time you go to a different culture, you see the world in a different place. And so I feel it's a different way of, of feeling or seeing music. Uh, there are so many uh, aspects to Indian music that just don't quite translate or don't exactly exist in the same way, or maybe at all, in Western music. And so it, it's you really have to take a journey to get into the music. And certainly, even for someone like Ali Akbar Khan, he was still learning things uh, even in his 80s. And uh, for us mere mortals, uh, just who, who like the music, I mean, it, it takes a lifetime, I think, to really appreciate it. Well, you know, Americans, most of us, don't understand it, and yet we can sense its beauty, its intricacy, uh, certainly the, the fact that it's technically extremely challenging and a lot of virtuosic playing involved. And it was interesting to see in your film that, um, though most people, I think, might imagine that it was Ravi Shankar, the sitar player, who first brought Indian music to the West, it actually was Ali Akbar Khan in the mid-50s who right. was brought to England and the U.S. by Yehudi Menuhin, the, the great classical uh, violinist. Uh, and it was uh, Ali Akbar Khan who cut the first Western uh, LP of Indian classical music. Yeah, and he was on Alistair Cook's Omnibus TV show. Um, he did a tour that was uh, in Europe, in London, and uh, you know, at the Museum of Modern Art in New York. I just can't imagine how exotic the music must have seemed to New Yorkers when he first brought it uh, to the United States. And if you see pictures, there are a couple of pictures in the documentary of him uh, on the streets of New York in his uh, Indian kurta and his pajamas, uh, which is kind of traditional uh, dress in India. Um, and, and just 1950s kids looking at this man, and they don't know quite who he is, but you can see in their expressions that they know he's somebody important. Um, and it just must have been an incredible time there. And, you know, a couple of years before the 60s when things really opened up for the music, and, of course, basically 10 years after he performed at the Museum of Modern Art, he came and he taught at Berkeley, and a couple of years after that, he moved to California and set up his music college, the Ali Akbar College of Music in San Rafael in Marin County. So he was um, recognized as a master musician by Americans and started to influence people very early on. I think that the very first group of musicians that I know of who were really in, uh, influenced by Indian music were jazz musicians. I mean, John Coltrane was one of them. He had listened to um, Bismillahan, who I mentioned earlier, and was already incorporating sort of Indian modal scales into his music in, I think, by the late 50s, and got heavily into it in the 60s. And then, of course, it was rock and roll. It was the Beatles with Ravi Shankar and so on. But Ali Akbar Khan, man, he is the number one ambassador, setting up this college, training a couple of generations of young musicians in Indian classical music, but also influencing jazz, rock, blues guys. I want to play another uh, clip from your film. This is John Handy, uh, the very well-known jazz saxophonist, um, describing his first experience of Ali Akbar Khan's music when they met in the early 70s. It was his look, it was his way he played, the way he approached his music. He would drive me insane in a beautiful, spiritual way, just like, crying on that instrument. <laughs> crying, but in a happy cry. Yes. You know, yes. it wasn't sobbing. It was beautiful, spiritually exuding and coming out, and, and, I, and I learned a lot. I'm still learning 
from him. John Handy, the alto sax player, uh, describing his first experience of Ali Akbar Khan's music, featured in the new documentary, Play Like a Lion, The Legacy of Maestro Ali Akbar Khan, by Joshua Dylan Mellers, who's my guest today on the 7th Avenue Project here on KUSP. Um, Joshua, you know, you can be amazed at this music on a technical level. We talked a little bit about some of its challenges, but uh, a lot of people experience it more, as John Handy was saying there, as a kind of spiritual music. I think so. I think that the way the music is played, I mean, uh, a typical concert raga is almost an hour, a little under an hour. And when they used to just play the ragas in the royal courts or just as a spiritual practice, uh, they would play for hours and hours. You know, Ali Akbar Khan's father, Baba Loudon Khan, uh, would play for days at a time. It was purely a spiritual practice um, in those cases. And so I think when you're hearing those sounds for that kind of time, it takes you just to a different place. Uh, it's not like a three-minute rock and roll song, which, you know, I, I, I love rock, and it, it, rock songs can get you uh, excited and you can dance to it, but it's, it's taking you to a very different place than that three-minute rock song or a pop song or some kind of other music. It, it can be a very emotional experience as well. Uh, you talked to a number of people, aside from John Handy, who had been influenced by Ali Akbar Khan, uh, Mickey Hart of the Grateful Dead, who says that Jerry Garcia was influenced in his guitar playing um, by Ali Akbar Khan, um, a blues guitarist, Derek Trucks, and uh, not surprisingly, Carlos Santana. Uh, here's a clip of Carlos Santana talking to you. The sound is like singing water, and it's got a lot of blues in it also. He's one of the few who have, like Bob Marley and Coltrane, the universal tone. He's the sound of compassion. I have no problem equating putting videos with Desmond Tutu, Mandela, Mother Teresa, and Dalai Lama, and I would put Ali, Ali Aparkhan's music, because it, it, it's the same tone. These people who came to this planet only to heal and to enlighten, if you go to the desert, you're going to need water. You, you have champagne and wine and beer and tequila, but you're going to need water, man. And that's what, that's what is. His sound sounds like the sound of singing water. Carlos Santana there talking about Ali Akbar Khan's music. Um, you approached a number of musicians. Uh, were they all eager to talk about him? They, they really were. And I think when you get in the room and do an interview with someone like Carlos Santana and you hear the glowing uh, things that he has to say about Ali Akbar Khan, you really get an idea of how great a musician and how much he means to other musicians. A lot of the musicians we spoke to called him a musician's musician, meaning that although most of us can enjoy his music, you really almost need to be a master musician yourself to even understand everything he's doing. Um, one thing that impressed me is uh, something that Zakir Hussain said, Zakir uh, is a great Indian percussionist, uh, tabla player, those are the, the hand drums used in Indian music, uh, who accompanied and played with Ali Akbar Khan quite a bit from the time he was a young man, from the time Zakir was a young man. Um, and he said that despite all those days, hours, years of playing with Ali Akbar Khan, 
he was perpetually surprised uh, that Ali Akbar Khan was inventing all the time, and you could never predict what he would play next. Yeah, that's so true, and I think uh, Ali Akbar Khan and even his father really uh, had a lot of respect for the tabla. Uh, and well, the tabla obviously are the percussion instrument, and so the prominence of the tabla, I think, increased a lot through um, Ali Akbar Khan and his father. And Ali Akbar Khan really took under his wing uh, people like Zakir Hussain or um, uh, Shapan Chaudhary, another tabla player who is also a teacher at the Ali Akbar College of Music and is revered throughout the world and, of course, in India. And, and so they, they all say, and I think you can learn a lot by talking to somebody who is an accompanying a soloist, I think what everyone tends to say who plays with him is that uh, it's like, I guess, like playing with someone who's a better tennis player than you, right? It brings your game up. You know, I think that anyone who, who played with Ali Akbar Khan was just brought to this, this other level where they couldn't be thinking about what they had played in class. They were just there. They were trying to keep up with him, and in doing, they really pushed the limit of things. Mm-hmm. Um- Alam Khan, Ali Akbar Khan's son, who we heard uh, at the beginning of the show from your film, talking about deciding to perpetuate, to preserve this music, later talks about what a burden that is, how people are expecting a lot of him, how keeping this tradition as a sacred trust is, you know, it's a heavy load to bear. And honestly, Alam seems kind of sad and downcast throughout this this movie, Um, like, it's almost too much for him. It, it is a big burden, and I think what we also have to um, take into consideration is that during this period, um, he was seeing his father in his declining years, and actually during the course of filming, uh, Ali Akbar Khan played his last concerts, and then there was a moment at which uh, he just wasn't able to play this road anymore. He continued teaching up, up to the very end, incredibly. Um, so I think part of that probably is not just the burden of the music, although that was obviously a, a, an enormous uh, pressure to just try to live up to expectations, but also having to go through life and see your father, who uh, was a great musician and an inspiration to him musically, but also his father um, going through these waning years. And I think that that's something that all of us probably can relate to, and most of us are going to have to go through at some point. Uh, I think that that's where a certain amount of the poignancy of of the film uh, comes in, and I'm very appreciative that the cons, you know, opened themselves up and uh, let us uh, see it because I think it's it's such an inspiring story. In the end, to see Alam pull through and really come into his own. Yeah, you just explained maybe some of the seriousness in his demeanor that we see throughout the film. That he is only roughly 23 years old when you're filming this. His dad is 85. And so there's a huge gap in ages. Uh, he loves his father dearly and knows that, you know, the end is going to come sometime. And yet he's trying to ignore it, trying not to think about it. And so along with the weight of uh, preserving and carrying on the musical tradition, he's also thinking about the imminent loss of his father, which in fact happened while you were filming. Ali Akbar Khan died and you filmed the uh, memorial ceremony. Was that in uh, in somewhere in Marin um, at the cemetery where you show people burying him? It was. It was. And um, that's, you know, he made California and Marin his home. 
and that's where he wanted to be laid to rest. Um, and um, they've set up a very, uh, you know, uh, tasteful um, uh, burial area where, where you actually, um, some of the students can go and just remember him and, and remember uh, his music. Um, and um, every year the students continue to celebrate his birthday. Uh, that was a big uh a big celebration when he was alive, and that's just become a, a tradition that the students continue to celebrate. Um, so fortunately, I think when you have a son who's taken up um, your instrument, your music, uh, all of him is carrying, he literally is carrying his father's tradition into the future, and uh, we have all the great recordings that Ali Akbar Khan made, but it's wonderful to have a son who's keeping it alive, um, and and a young son who's keeping it alive. Let's hear some of Alam Khan's playing. Um, this is a clip, again, from your film, Play Like a Lion, and this is Alam Khan, the son of Ali Akbar Khan, playing the Sarod. clip there of Alam Khan, the son of Ali Akbar Khan, the great Indian virtuoso. Alam is playing the sarod, the Indian stringed instrument, and that is from the film Play Like a Lion by Joshua Dylan Mellers, who's my guest today on the 7th Avenue Project here on KUSP. I'm Robert Polly. And I just want to remind listeners that the film we've been discussing, Play Like a Lion, the legacy of maestro Ali Akbar Khan, We'll be showing at the Santa Cruz Film Festival on Monday, May 14th. That's tomorrow if you're listening to this show on Sunday. That'll be at the Nickelodeon Theater in downtown Santa Cruz at 8.30 p.m. You can find out more about the Santa Cruz Film Festival and all showtimes at santacruzfilmfestival.org. Now on to the second half of today's show, a conversation with filmmaker Joshua Dylan Mellers. Well, Joshua, let's talk about another film of yours, also about music, also a documentary. Um, this is a very different tradition, but it's also heartrending. It is Portuguese fado. I, I love Portuguese fado music, and it's very dear to my heart. Um, I took a trip to Portugal when I was uh, in college, and it was just after I had broken up with my first serious girlfriend. So I was feeling a little bit uh, brokenhearted. I remember going into one of these photo houses. You see a woman with a black shawl and the Portuguese guitar, which looks like a big mandolin, kind of. And I didn't speak Portuguese at that time, but it's just something about the way they carry themselves and the way the the woman wails the music almost. Uh, it just captured my imagination, and I thought, 
gosh, there's, there's something really incredible there, and I've got to come back to this. And I think the first CD that I got after I saw that photo show was a CD from the great Amalia Rodriguez, who is, you know, I don't even know how to um, reference her in our cultural terms. She was such an important musician and almost beyond a musician in Portuguese culture. And there's something so mysterious about photo music, um, but something so familiar, at least to me, uh, and it's another one of those musics that I think it can just take you on this journey. Um, I, I just feel like I'm sailing away when I listen to it. Well, before we get any further into this interview, uh, instead of talking about Fado, let's play some. This is an excerpt from a song by Katya Guerrero, one of the, the best younger generation of Fado singers, or Fadistas as they're known, and who is featured in your film. Uh, your film, by the way, we didn't name it, but it is called uh, Heaven's Mirror, A Portuguese Voyage. So here's Cachi Guerrero. Se uma Trazer-me os céus de Lisboa No desenho que fizesse Nesse céu onde eu olhar É uma asa que não voa Esmorece e cai no mar Que perfeito coração Just a little uh, excerpt from a song by the Fado singer Katia Guerrero from Portugal singing Gaivota, and I'm probably mispronouncing that. Um, Joshua, you actually anticipated a question I was going to ask you a few moments ago. You are featured in this film as a kind of brooding wanderer, uh, not saying much, but seen walking around the streets of Lisbon, uh, looking a little forlorn. And I was going to ask you if that was just a gimmick or whether maybe you had had a breakup before making this film. Sounds like that's the case, huh? Well, I, I don't know how much I should reveal, you know. I mean, I think Ernest Hemingway always said um, he he liked it when people didn't know how much was real and how much was fiction. Yeah, but look what happened to him in the end for, for bottling well, all that yeah, up. Yeah, I don't want that fate. <laughs> um, you know... I think when I was first drawn to doing a documentary uh, about Fado music, because it's one thing to really like a music, it's another to go on a six-year journey filming uh, Fado singers and traveling around the world trying to get at the essence of it. 
And I, I think um, I, I wasn't originally going to be a protagonist in the movie, um, but it just seemed like Fado was such a personal art form. When you hear these Fado singers like Katia or like any of them singing, it's, it's like they're opening their soul to you. Um, they're opening up their hearts to you. And so I felt like, even though I wasn't maybe going to go as far as they do, I needed to expose myself a bit or give the audience uh, sort of a, a window in to this music through me, in a way. So that's why I'm brooding in the background. I think Fada <laughs> music brings out the brooder. Gotcha. Uh, you do reveal at the, near the end of the movie that you spent six years traveling around, uh, I think you say bankrupting yourself, looking for something and, and making this film. And you were asking a lot of people about a, a certain concept that's central to Fado. I want to hear uh, one of your interviewees talking about that. This is, uh, I believe it's pronounced Madalena Pata. Uh-huh. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, that's it. Here we go. I used to sing in Portugal, but not really Fado, you know, the more pop music. Uh-huh. But then when I came to America, uh, I started feeling so that, <laughs> and that's when Fado came. <laughs> We came over here, we love this country, but we still um, long for to go to Portugal and be there for a while. You are far away and you long to be with the people you love. That's all that. So, so Madalena Pata there, uh, who we heard speaking and also singing, she was singing in what appeared to be a living room in, uh, is this in Providence, Rhode Island? That was in Providence, uh-huh. Where there's a large uh, Portuguese emigre community? Definitely. And it was where I was first exposed to Portuguese culture and also Fado music. Uh, I went to Brown University, which is in Providence. And uh, I actually, my first dorm was really right next to a very prominent Portuguese neighborhood. And so uh, at the time, I didn't know much about Portuguese culture, but... You know, I started meeting some of the Portuguese, and there were some Portuguese who actually worked at the college. And I saw my first uh, photo performance, much like the one uh, of Madalena that's in the documentary. And so that gave me an idea. But you don't really get the full feeling until you listen to photo music in Portugal mm-hmm. in one of the little taverns in Lisbon called Fado Houses. Yeah, we'll talk about Fado Houses in just a, a second, but... Um... I, I hinted that uh, Madalena was talking about a particular concept, and she used the word there, saudade. Um, you ask a lot of people in Portugal during your wanderings, what is this saudade? I was trying to figure it out. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, I, I lived in Brazil for a couple of years, and that's where I first heard the word saudade. In Brazil, they pronounce it saudade. Right. And I just... Everyone said this is something that can't be translated. And at first, I, I, you know, could you just tell me, give me an idea, a clue? And then through context, you start to understand it a little bit. But it takes a little bit of time. And I think through doing the documentary, because Fado music is really all about Saudad, I found that Saudad means something slightly different for everyone. Well, I've heard it, uh, you know, loosely translated as nostalgia or longing. Um, one of the best definitions you got came from the Fado singer Kamene. Uh He says, it's a feeling of missing something, something you're not even sure exists. 
And that's exactly how I felt when I started doing the film. There was something about Portuguese culture, perhaps. There was something out there. I didn't know what it was. I didn't know exactly how to find it. But I felt compelled to go on this journey, and somehow it was going to lead me to that answer. And I think what you find is that you don't always find the answer, but the question provokes a journey which takes you to a different place in your life, and that's probably what life is really all about. A lot of times when people talk about Saudade, they talk about a longing for the past. But I think the really exciting Saudade is the Saudade of the future, where it's something, like you just said, Kamini said, something you don't know if it exists, a person, a place that you might meet. Um, it can get a little bit intellectual, but it's, it's something exciting, and I think there's something about the wanderer. Um, in it all. And, and that really appealed to me as somebody who's lived in five different countries and uh, has done a bit of traveling. Uh, I think you kind of leave fragments of yourself wherever you live. And so there's always something left behind and maybe always something in the, in the future that you're looking for. Well, it may be a little glib to say this, but some people credit that exactly that quality you were just describing of wandering, leaving bits of yourself behind, longing for home, being displaced, to, in fact, the Portuguese experience, you know, being the seafaring nation that spread out across the globe and established colonies all over the place, but eventually lost its empire, you know. Um, and <laughs> it has this, I don't know if it's a nostalgia for empire or nostalgia for greatness or just a memory of having been something bigger, but some people say that's part of the root of this sad feeling in Fado. I think it makes a lot of sense. And if you have lived, even in our very modern world where we've got internet and we've got text messages and cell phones, um, if you live in a different part of the country or you leave your family and you go to a different, uh, a different country altogether, you feel that feeling, uh, missing something, being, being away from, um, those familiar textures of your life. So, I mean, you can imagine uh, when the Portuguese were doing their exploration of the world, um, you get on this rickety ship, go basically around the world, and you don't know if you're ever going to get back to your culture. Uh, the wives don't know if their husbands are going to come back. I mean, it creates a lot of longing. <laughs> and I think, as you mentioned, um, to think of having an empire just so far in the past, uh, when the Portuguese were at the height of, uh, I guess, their game as a nation, was so long ago uh, that I'm sure even though things have changed and people aren't thinking about that, it's got to be somewhere in the psyche. It's, 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 it's got to have melded into the culture to a certain extent. I think what strikes me about Portugal compared to any of the other European countries is you see so much architecture that's kind of uh, from the Middle Ages or uh, a few hundred years after that. I haven't seen in Germany or other places so much architecture like that. I mean, you still find these old monasteries or castles. So there's something very ancient uh, about Portugal, and I think that it brings out um, a strong feeling of that mysterious connection to the past. And so no doubt that also has played some role in the way Fado has developed and the way the Portuguese psyche has developed. 
And by the way, when I say nostalgia for empire, I don't want to romanticize what no, no. what what, <laughs> what uh, conquering and enslaving foreign lands really amounted to. Uh, and nor are these songs about that. None of them are about the glories of conquest or anything like that. They're all very personal. They're often about love and broken hearts, you know, or about Lisbon. Uh, every other Fado song seems to mention Lisboa, which is Lisbon. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> I mean, they love Lisbon. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, why Why wouldn't you? Anyone who has had the chance to go to Lisbon uh, that I've talked to just is charmed by it. I, I certainly was on my first trip. And uh, coming from California, to me, there's something about Portugal that feels a little Californian-esque, uh, something about sometimes some places on the coastline. Of course, in Lisbon, you have a bridge that almost looks like an exact copy of the Golden Gate Bridge. You've got the big hills. And um, and then there's a bit of a laid-back feeling. It's not exactly a Santa Cruz laid-back, but there's something about it that's a little bit more mellow. And... Um, I think if you go to Lisbon, I think it's one of those those secrets of Europe. I know people go there, but I think that they go to Paris or other uh, places in Europe a lot more. And um, I don't know. I mean, I should probably be working for the, the Portuguese tourist board, getting a commission. It's just such a wonderful place, great food, uh, great people. And um, I, I, it's certainly one of the places I like to go. Mm. This is the 7th Avenue Project on KUSP Central Coast Public Radio. I'm Robert Polly, and I'm talking to Joshua Dylan Mellers, documentary filmmaker. And in this part of the show, we're discussing his film, Heaven's Mirror, A Portuguese Voyage, about Fado music in Portugal. Um, Joshua, when did this film come out? And I want to make it clear to listeners that unlike your other film that we talked about in the first part of the show, uh, Play Like a Lion, this one's not showing at the Santa Cruz Film Festival. No, it's not. It's actually next showing at the Provincetown Film Festival on the East Coast. Uh, Heaven's Mirror made its festival premiere last September, so it actually came out right about the same time as Play Like a Lion. And I've, uh, I filmed both films basically simultaneously, so I was going between Indian music and Portuguese music, uh, and it's kind of fascinating. And there have been some interesting synergies. I went to India to film... Uh, all I'm taking his first solo tour, but while I was there, I had some connections with the Portuguese uh, Consul General in San Francisco, and he said, while you're in India, why don't you go to Goa and film some of the colonial architecture there? So I had a couple days I went down to Goa, which is just a beautiful, beautiful place, and I was just going to get a couple of you know, the facades of uh, the Portuguese colonial part of town. And it turned out that there is a very active uh, Goan Fado community there. I met several people who still speak Portuguese and some young people who are playing Portuguese guitar and singing uh, Fado music. So uh, they say Fado is fate, and certainly both of these documentaries have taken me on some interesting roads. Yeah. Uh, Goa is a, a state on the um, west coast of India, a beautiful place. It's a real tourist destination because of its famous beaches and so on. But it is a former Portuguese colony. It wasn't even handed back to, to the Indians until 1961. Uh, and it's full of Portuguese architecture and, as you say, descendants of the Portuguese settlers there. And, and Fado. Is the Fado in Goa different from the Fado in Portugal? Yeah, certainly. I think... Um Everywhere where you sing a music, you know, all the textures of that particular place 
uh, come into the music. So, and, and obviously, uh, people speak Portuguese, uh, but it, it's a little bit different in Goa. So, yeah, you feel you feel kind of a different vibe to it. But at, at root, it's the same thing, and they're expressing that saudade. <laughs> right. Um, and the Goans that I spoke to said that you know they're they're this very interesting mixture of India and 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 Portuguese, and that's still kind of there somewhere. So it's a fascinating place to go. It's another beach town like Santa Cruz. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm, yeah. Um, let's make our way back to Portugal. You mentioned Fado houses. These are the kind of taverns where Fado is traditionally performed. You actually filmed some Fado houses, and you got um, a great sequence with the aforementioned singer Kamene singing in a Fado house. I'd like to play a little clip from that scene. Eu tenho um sonho dourado so if our listeners can picture this pretty intimate sort of tavern, people sitting at tables with food and drink, and uh, in the center is the singer Kamene with the traditional Fado ensemble uh, backed by a guitar and a Portuguese guitar, which has the higher sort of metallic sound. Um, did you stage that for your film, or, or did you just go into a regular Fado house to see him? Well, we we staged it in that Kamene is a big-time performer there. And yeah. he, he normally just performs you know, on, in, in big concert halls and things. Yeah. But when uh, I told him about this movie and kind of what I wanted to capture, and what I wanted to capture was really the intimacy of Fado, right. which you can only really get in these Fado houses. Uh, and he said, well, there's this, this great Fado house in Alfama, which is the traditional neighborhood uh, where they play Fado, uh, called Mesa de Frades. And, you know, I don't perform there for money, I just go there with my friends and hang out, and then if, you know, I feel like it, I go up and I sing a couple of fados. He said, why don't we just film there? So that's what we did. Um, you know, he said, I'm going to just wear a raggedy T-shirt and some jeans. He ended up putting on a bit of a nicer shirt. Uh, but it's it's a very authentic feeling, and frankly, the owner, I, I needed to put up, you know, a light just to get a little bit of uh, light for the camera, because normally in these follow houses, it's very dark. Mm -hmm. You know, you, you barely can see the performers. Um, but the owner was kind of upset about that. He, <laughs> he's actually a Portuguese guitar player himself. So, you know, I managed to let them let me put the light up. Uh, but other than that, I mean, it was just the regular, uh, you know, Tuesday night crowd that goes to this place. Um, and I think it really did capture that feeling, you know, that, that you get uh, when you just wander into one of these uh, charming little places. Mesa de Fridays actually used to be an old chapel. So there are these beautiful uh, azulejo Portuguese tiles, you know, the blue and white tiles. And it's pretty cram crammed in there. I mean, there wasn't a whole lot of room for me to actually back up my camera because you're so close to the performers. It, it, they close up the doors when the singers start singing. And 
it gets very hot in there, and you're kind of crammed in there with everyone, but you really kind of feel it. And when you're a real insider, even after hours, they they lock it up, and then there's sort of an impromptu session where some of the musicians and singers just sing everything from Fado music to Brazilian uh, music to even some English language stuff. So uh, it's it's one of those. I think what was magical for me was it's one of those kind of um, bohemian places that still exist in the world. Uh, and, uh, you know, just uh, hearing that clip of Kamenei, I want to go back there right now. <laughs> <laughs> but let me ask this. Fado has become, you know, uh, much exposed around the world in the last 10 years thanks to this younger generation of Fadishtas, Fado singers like Marisa, the great diva, <laughs> um, and, and others. Um, and thanks also to films like yours. Um, are these photo houses now crammed with tourists, and is the tradition endangered by that? I think it really depends. I think you have to be like uh, any kind of traveling you might do anywhere. Uh, you have to be an intelligent traveler, and you really have to um, find the right places. Obviously, when you have basically someone who's like the Elvis Presley of Fado, who's Kamenei, tell you, hey, this is the real thing, you know, that's that's a good reference. And you just named it on the air. You know, you just ruined that place. Oh, no. <laughs> They're going to hate me in Portugal. <laughs> but, um, you know, uh, there there are places that are extremely touristy, uh, and you got to watch out for those. Uh, I mean, you know, I guess you can get some feeling of it, but I saw some follow houses where they they literally bus in the tourists. So a bus load of tourists comes in, they give them some food, they play the music, and then they bus them out, and there's like three different waves of tourists coming in. That's not the kind of experience I wanted, and that's certainly not what I wanted to capture in the film. Uh, and then you've got other restaurant uh, follow houses that are a little more upscale, but they're they're not they're not bad, um, and you kind of get uh, you know a more sophisticated fado evening, and oftentimes they'll just be Portuguese in these places, uh, and then you have places like Mesa de Frades or even uh, places that are not actually called fado houses, but they just have little fado get-togethers, and you have to know when they're happening. Last time I was in Portugal, Kamenei's brother, Elder Moutinho, who's a songwriter and also a fado singer, said, hey, uh, I've just set up this fado thing. We do it every Sunday night, and we went to this cute little um, restaurant that was just about a, a couple blocks away from Mesa de Frades, and he sang a couple of songs, uh, and just regular people, not professionals, would sing, and many of them had incredible voices. And I think it's you, you just have to be ready to, for a little bit of adventure and kind of investigation, but you can definitely find those authentic uh, photo experiences if you look for them. Mm. We spoke a, a moment ago about the Portuguese guitar, which, along with the singing, is really <laughs> the essence of fado, I think, um, uh, it is again. You say like looks like a large mandolin, but it doesn't sound like a mandolin. It's got these wire strings. It has this beautiful uh, uh, plaintive tone to it. Um, you spoke to a couple of uh, really distinguished uh, Portuguese guitarists. One of them is Carlos Gonçalves, uh -huh. who actually uh, accompanied Amalia Rodriguez when she was alive, the greatest of all the fadistas. Um, she died in 1999. And uh, we have a, a clip here of him describing 
um, what I call the plaintive sound of the Portuguese guitar. So Carlos Gonçalves there, Portuguese guitarist, uh, describing how he makes a, a kind of weeping sound by bending the notes and also saying, uh, I guess, that the, the, it's the saddest music and the saddest music is the best music. <laughs> Definitely if you're Portuguese. <laughs> I couldn't help but uh, notice um, the correspondence between that clip and the one we played in the first half of the show from John Handy describing the weeping of... Ali Akbar Khan's Sarod uh, in your other film, Play Like a Lion. Um, so again, with the crying, Joshua. It's, it's a running theme, <laughs> definitely. <laughs> I, you know, I think when, when someone is brought to tears, there's obviously passion there. So um, that's an indicator that there's a lot of emotion. And one of the wonderful things, I think, about Fado music, and if you get to go to Lisbon, is you can listen to some of the greats of the music, like Carlos Gonzalez, if you just go to some of these Fado houses. I mean, they're, they're playing big shows as well, but many of them have regular gigs at these little intimate uh, Fado houses. And that's actually where I filmed him, was at the Fado house where he regularly performs. So, um, you know, it's, it's wonderful to still be able to have that, uh, that intimate connection with a folk music uh, that, that dates back, in Fado's case, to, you know, at least a couple hundred years, but has its roots in all kinds of music um, that goes back much farther than that. So go to a Fado house, do not go in large numbers, respect the traditions, and bring some Kleenex. Hey, I think that's probably a, some good tips for traveling anywhere in the world. <laughs> <laughs> well, Joshua, it's been a pleasure. I really enjoyed talking to you. And I just want to remind listeners that your film, Play Like a Lion, the legacy of Maestro Ali Akbar Khan, will be showing at the Santa Cruz Film Festival Monday, May 14th, tomorrow, if listeners are tuning into this broadcast on Sunday, at the Nickelodeon Theater in downtown Santa Cruz. That's at 8.30 p.m. Again, part of the Santa Cruz Film Festival. More information can be found at santacruzfilmfestival.org. Joshua Dylan Mellers, thank you very much. Thank you. It's been a real pleasure. And you've been listening to The 7th Avenue Project on the web at 7thAvenueProject.com. <laughs>